Good morning. Uh, it's really wonderful to be with you guys. Ronnie was a year ahead of me in seminary. He was one of those guys, you know, I show up on campus and look and think, uh, I will never be like that kind of guy. And uh, it's true. It's pretty, <laughs> uh, so I never have become that kind of guy. Um, but uh, it is really so good to be with you. Thank you for welcoming us to your country and to your city and to your church. I pastor a young church in Texas that's much like this. We are asking the same questions that you're asking, which is, how do we take this great news of God's great mercy to this particular place that God has put, it, to, has put us? How do we exclaim that to each other and to the world? How do we love and serve our neighbors? And it's really so wonderful to be united in that mission together, even uh, in totally different places, uh, even though we live in the only place that's as hot as Puerto Rico is. Uh, so we are united in that way as well. Uh, you know, when Ronnie asked me to preach, uh, and, I, and I gave him this text uh, that I was going to preach out of Jonah chapter 2, this is, this is the kind of idiot that I am. It didn't even connect to me that I'm going to come preach about a storm and a flood in Puerto Rico. And uh, so this, this may be even more relevant to you than it has been to me. You may feel this deeply. You know what it's like. Many of you have been through, probably not one, but many heavy storms. Uh, and maybe you're even going through a storm right now. Right? Maybe it's not the literal storm, it's the metaphorical storm that's happening in your hearts. If that's you, either one of those cases, I want to just call your attention to God's great mercy this morning. You know, if you haven't heard the story of Jonah in a while, you may remember it like you thought you heard it when you were a kid, that it was a story about a big fish. It's not. It's actually a story about God's big mercy. It's a story about a really big and really merciful God, a God who wants the world to know his mercy, and the reluctant prophet Jonah who just can't get his arms around that big mercy. That's the big mercy that we want to see this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Jonah chapter 2. It's printed, I think, in your worship bulletin as well. I'm actually going to start with the last verse in chapter 1, which I don't think is printed, but you can just listen and follow along. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, and then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. It is true in 
all its words. He gives it to us because he loves us and because he wants us to know him. Let me give you a real quick recap on what's happened so far in the story of Jonah. Jonah starts out, God calls Jonah. He's a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he asks Jonah, this prophet, to go preach to a group of people that are not like him. They're not in his tribe. They are not Jews. They're not Israelites. In fact, they're the enemies of the Israelites, and God wants his mercy preached even to those enemies. And Jonah can't get his arms around this big mercy, so he goes not this way, but this way. He runs the exact opposite direction, boards a ship to head out as far as he can to get away from Nineveh. Well, God sends a storm to bring him back. And then he sends a fish to bring him back. And through all of this, Jonah is supposed to learn one really important thing about the Lord. His compassion. The Lord's compassion toward Jonah and toward the world. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about this idea of compassion. Very early, actually, in chapter 1, there's this scene that Jonah has found himself in the bottom of the ship. Everybody else is in the, in the midst of this storm. All of the sailors, uh, all of the pagan sailors who are actually always in this story, by the way, all of the ungodly folks are always acting more godly than the prophet Jonah in this story. Okay? And they're all out there bailing water, and Jonah's asleep at the bottom of the ship, and the captain of the ship comes to him and says, what are you doing? Cry out to your God. Maybe that God will give a thought to us. That idea of giving a thought to really embodies in a lot of way this idea of compassion. Compassion, the way that we talk about it in our church, one of our kind of core values is that we move toward people. We move toward people in love and service. We move toward people in giving away of ourselves. We move toward people who are lonely. We move toward people who are gripped by their idols. We move toward our neighbors and our coworkers and the people around us. Moving toward someone is also another great way that you could describe compassion. To move toward someone in love and service. To take your thoughts away from yourself and to move them to another to give thought to someone other than you. Now, compassion, you know, is something that at least where I live, I mean, people always talk about it. They like it. We want to live in a compassionate society. And, you know, no matter how old you are, these are even just kind of uh, the, the, the calls that have come from our culture, right? The Beatles saying, all you need is love. Rodney King said, why can't we all just get along Taylor Swift says, you know, be kind to someone else. That's the best thing that you can do. Everybody wants compassion. And of course, God's word just rings with that call to compassion. Colossians chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul is telling Christians, take off the old self, put on the new self. Do you remember the first thing that he says to put on? Compassionate hearts. Our, Our culture desires it. The Bible requires it. But I don't know about you, but where I live, it's not necessarily the thing that just kind of rings out of the loudspeakers of our culture. We walked around Old San Juan yesterday, and, uh, and the, the, the phrases that are written you know, on the sides of the walls are not necessarily compassionate phrases, are they? Uh, the, the, the presidential tweets and their congressional counterparts are not filled with compassion these days. The way that we speak to one another in the public sphere or in the blogosphere or however it is, it's usually not marked by deep compassion, is it? 
So how do we become more compassionate people? How do we become people whose lives are turned rather than toward ourselves, toward others? How do we move toward others in compassion, in love, in service? How do we grow it in our lives, right? If compassion is a flowering plant, what do we need to put in the soil? If it's a recipe, what are the steps? Well, here's this one phrase I want you to just keep in in your mind. If you don't hear anything else today, just hear this. Uh, You cannot grow in compassion until you know compassion. Now, that may not make sense to you immediately. And it's true. You can probably go be compassionate on your own, and you can do a little bit, but it'll run out. But you cannot actually have a life devoted toward others. You cannot have a life that's marked by moving toward others unless you have known the compassion of another. And what we find in the book of Jonah is that as Jonah begins to learn even just a little bit, and when we read the end, we know that he's not totally learned it when we close the book, but even just learning a little bit of compassion, the root of it is his learning to know the compassion that he has been shown by the Lord. So we're going to break this down into four steps. Our recipe for growing compassion is four steps, okay? The first of which is humility. Now, that's an exciting word, right? It's a nice word, humility, but let me just let you in on the dark underbelly of humility. Listen to the way that Jonah describes him in uh, experiencing humility. Verse 3, if you've got it in front of you. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Man, humility is a great word. It's a fun concept, right? But, you know, to experience humility is actually to be humbled. And that is not fun. Being humbled is actually the way that we grow humility in our lives. And being humbled is not a fun experience. Uh, when my kids were very young, uh, you know, we, we put them to bed every night. And for you parents, you know that bedtime is, um, is the most, it's the thing that kids look forward to most during the day, right? It's what they live for. They're like, Dad, can we please go to bed early tonight? Because that's what I want most out of life. That's not the case. Well, there was one time, you know, one day in our lives where it was time for bed. It was time for the kids to go to bed. And, um, and so we said, it's time to go to bed. And uh, being the fact that they had not actually been looking forward to going to bed all day, uh, one of my children, who will go unnamed, uh, threw a fit, right? And this fit included stomping off, you know, our little 1930s house with wood floors. It sounded like this. Okay, stomping around the house, walking into the room, slamming the door, and then flopping on the bed, and then out of anger, after flopping on the bed, kind of kicked feet this way. Well, this way was actually in the, in the direction of the window, And we had these, you know, old double-hung, single-pane windows, and like that, boom, glass everywhere, windows shattered. It's not a good-looking night. Well, I was at my time, because my wife had so kindly actually done the work of, of working them to bed, I was, as is my right as king, sitting on the couch watching television, Uh, I don't know if there was a beer in my hand, but it makes the story better if there was. And as I was sitting there with my feet up, she comes very gently in and says, there's an issue, here's what's happened, the window has broken. And in my mind, you know, 
every bit of, of, of care for my children, every bit of thinking of what good parenting is, that all just disappeared, right? It just flows right out of my mind. And the only thing I'm thinking is, I've got to repair a window. That's what I'm doing all day tomorrow is replacing a window. So what did I do? I was not six years old, by the way, as my kid was, but you'll, you'll find some irony in this. I actually stomped off to my room, slammed my door, and flopped myself on my bed. And I told you we lived in a 1930s house. Well, in this old door, something about me slamming my door broke the door, the lock in the door, and it locked me in my room. Literally, I could not get out of the room. My wife had to pass a screwdriver under the door so that I could get myself out of the room. And all of my kids who were supposed to be in bed are now gathered around watching dad act like a six-year-old. That's being humbled. (laughs) That's taken from a position where I think I'm really lofty and it's bringing me down really low. Maybe you've been in such a position Maybe that has happened to you. Maybe it's happened to you on kind of a funny scale like that. Maybe it's happened to you on a really big, important, tragic scale. Maybe it happens to you like it does to me about three times a week, where the Lord has to just kind of shake my shoulders and say, Hey, remember, you're not that great. Maybe you've been humbled. Maybe you actually feel like Jonah does in this case. Jonah's not just a funny humbling, right? This is a guy who says, I feel like I'm in the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the word that the Hebrews would use to describe the place of the dead. Jonah, this experience for him, it feels like death. That is sometimes what a humbling experience can feel like, to feel like death. Maybe the time in your life that you realized I can't manipulate God like I can manipulate all the people around me with my money or with my beauty or with my talents. Maybe the time you realized that the ocean that was kind of covering you and the weeds that felt like they were gathered around your neck were the storm of your own making, the addictions in your life, the things that just seem to cover you and drive everything that you do. And you finally have been brought to an understanding that you are deeply covered and feel like you're at the bottom of the ocean. Or maybe you feel like these are the things that have been done to you, right? And the humbling that you experience is actually uh, the work of others. And you have not been humbled because of what you've done. You've actually been abused and you are feeling the effects of that. Friends, if you're in any of those places, I want to tell you that there's good news. It's the next step. Because even though humbling is the first step and the important first step, it's a step that we cannot skip if we are really going to grow compassion in our lives. If we're going to understand the compassion of God toward us and see it pour out of us, we can't skip the humbling experience. But there's good news. Because the next step is, we, is the experience of actually being shown compassion. This, the experience of being shown compassion. Look at the way it was for Jonah. Verse 6. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's the bad news, but listen to this. 
Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Do you hear the beauty of that phrase, that little twinge of hope, that light, that ray of light that's coming here at the bottom of the ocean for Jonah? You have brought me up from the pit. You have raised me to new life. Friends, Jonah understood the good news and the bad news. Again, remember, we started this whole thing with, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Man, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be amazing if that's the way that your life was describing? Jonah's a prophet. His job is actually to take God's word to God's people. When Jonah boarded that ship, if they would have given theological exams to everyone, Jonah scoring the highest by far and away. But Jonah's the one who finds himself at the bottom of the ocean. He's been deeply humbled. And that's the bad news. The bad news of the good news is that it's a lot worse than you thought it was. But the good news of the good news is exactly this, is that God actually brings people up from the pit. That God raises to new life. Listen, even as he continues in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Steadfast love, two words in English that actually are translating a really, really important word in Hebrew, the original language in this, in this book. It's the word hesed, and it means God's steadfast, covenantal, familial, merciful, everlasting, not ending love, right? It took me like eight words to explain this one word, and it shows up all throughout the Bible, and every time we hear it, it's like we're, we're getting hammered with this idea of who God is. It describes his character. It describes one who is bound to us by what he does, not by what we do. It describes one whose mercy is everlasting. It describes one whose love goes forever. We sang these words earlier today, didn't we? I want you to just imagine something with me for a second. Okay, imagine you're driving a car and you're by a river. Could be one of the rivers, a big river in Puerto Rico. Could be, you know, New York City and, and it's the, uh, the, 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 what is that? The Hudson River in New York City. You could be in, you're in D.C. and it's the Potomac. Uh, could be uh, you're on the Mississippi. You're in St. Louis or Memphis or Baton Rouge, wherever it is. You're by a big river. You're driving your car and this is what happens, okay? Is that the guy in the car next to you screeches to a halt, gets out of his car and runs for the river and jumps in the river. What would you think? Lunatic, right? Why would anybody do that? Now, what if I changed the context a little bit and said, actually, what has happened is that as you're driving along, there's an airplane that has actually crashed into the river. It's made an emergency landing on the river, and there are passengers you know, just kind of strewn out into the water. And there's jet fuel that's kind of like all in the water, and it's getting in their eyes, and, it's, and they're cold, and some of them can't swim, and they're trying to figure out how in the world do I get to shore. And the guy in the car beside you has screeched to a halt and got out and run, and he's jumped in the river so that he could save someone. Now what do you think of that guy? He's a hero, right? Maybe even somebody I should pattern my life after and imitate. Sacrifice. Let me change the perspective one more time, though. Now imagine you're the man or woman in the river. It's your eyes that are filled with the water mixed with the jet fuel. It's your body that's shivering from the cold. And this man has jumped in and put his arm around you and dragged you to shore. Well, now what do you think about him? He's the one who saved your life. 
See, everything changes if you're the one who got rescued, doesn't it? Everything changes in your life if your perspective is the one who's been rescued. Friends, this is truly the good news of Christianity. If you're here and you're not really sure what Christians are all about, or you're not really sure what the church is all about, let me give it to you in a nutshell. This is what Christians believe. Jesus has done something for us that we could never do on our own. We're in the water, and Jesus has come in to pull us out. It's amazing, actually, what happens here in this passage. Jonah does not say, he does not appeal to the law. He does not say, you know, uh, I started to kind of get my act together. I started to kind of do the things that God asked me to do, and then he rescued me. He doesn't say, as Ronnie said earlier, you know, I started volunteering a little bit more, and then God kind of took a few steps toward me, right? When I moved toward him, he moved toward me, right? Because God helps those who help themselves. No, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who have no ability to help themselves. God jumps into the river where we're drowning. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is the good news, is that he's done something for us that we could never do on our own. He has been compassionate to us when we don't deserve it. Let me just pause and ask you, where has Jesus been compassionate to you? Maybe you'll go big picture, right? This is my story of faith and how he brought me to an understanding of his deep mercy. Maybe it's small picture. Where have you seen his compassion this week? Where have you seen his compassion already this morning? Where have you seen his compassion show up in ways that you realize deeply, this is not what I deserve, but it's what I got. And it's only because of God's grace that I got it. That's the second piece. And we're gonna grow compassion in our lives. We have to first be humbled. Then we have to experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. We have to know the compassion of Christ. How about the third piece? It's thankfulness. Thankfulness is the third step. Look at verse nine. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The attitude of compassion is one of thankfulness. The attitude of the heart that actually gives birth to compassion in our lives is an attitude of thankfulness. Again, interestingly that he says things like, I've made vows, I've done these, I've sacrificed. These are actually all the things that the pagans around him have been doing when he should have been doing. And what he's saying is that an attitude that is full of God's mercy, that has experienced the compassion of Jesus, will respond in thanksgiving. And thankfulness is really the attitude also of abundance. If I've been abundantly saved, then I can abundantly pour out in thanksgiving. I listened to a podcast not long ago, and it was talking about this really fascinating concept of how we as human beings deal with scarcity. It was an experiment that actually had been done on these college students. They had all volunteered for it. But they they had volunteered actually to be studied over the course of a few weeks about what hunger does to the mind. And so uh, most of them had voluntarily starved themselves. And, you know, when I think, okay, if I'm hungry, if I haven't eaten for two weeks or if I've eaten very little for that time, what's the last thing I want to think about? Food. I don't want to have any thoughts about food, right? Because I can't have it. Turns out that's the opposite of what is true. All these folks that they studied, 
they couldn't stop thinking about food. They were all hungry, and what they would do, they'd, they'd clip coupons from the newspaper. They would make recipes and swap them with one another. They would talk about their dreams and their plans of becoming restaurateurs. The scarcity had actually made them focus more deeply on the thing that was scarce in their lives. And this is actually true across the board. Uh, Sociologists will say this is oftentimes how those who are materially poor will think about money. Because they lack it, they actually don't think less about money but more. It starts to consume them. And the consumption in those thoughts actually leads them then to be making really bad decisions with their money. It's the same thing relationally. When we are void of relationships, we oftentimes do as much as we can to gather them. Have you ever been at a party with somebody who's really insecure? That person's super fun to talk to, aren't they? Not so much, right? Because if somebody is relationally insecure, they're actually working out of that scarcity and they're trying so hard, please like me. I'm going to do everything I can, say everything I can to make you like me. What does that make you want to do? Not like you. You see that? The scarcity, when we work out of scarcity, it actually works against us. The gospel is 180 degrees different. What the Lord tells us is that there is no scarcity in our relationship. There is no scarcity in our provision. There is no scarcity in the way that God has been merciful to us. There is no scarcity in his compassion. We are full. And when we start to work out of that fullness, then we don't have to consume our minds with how can I get these people to like me? How can I use the things that I have, my money, my beauty, my skills, whatever it is, how can I use those things to get something from others? It changes. How can I actually take what God has filled me with and pour it out for others? See how thanksgiving is the attitude of abundance, not of scarcity? The gospel creates abundance in the human heart, and we respond in thanksgiving. Now, let me pause just a second to say that um, my guess is many of you have actually seen this pattern take place before, and you've seen it in baptism. See, what's happening with Jonah has actually happened all throughout the Bible. Jonah is being immersed in water and brought through safely, kind of like Noah and his family were brought through the flood safely kind of like God brought his people through the waters of the Red Sea and put them out dry on the other side, kind of like he did the same thing in the waters of the Jordan River. And if you belong to Jesus, the Bible says you have been baptized with Christ and raised with him. And so when the church baptizes uh, either young children or adult converts, we actually proclaim the same things. Listen to the words that we oftentimes use. I'm going to paraphrase, but if you've been to a baptism, if you've seen it happen, you've probably heard these things said. Questions that are either to the person being baptized or to the parents of that child being baptized. Here are the questions. Do you know that you need Jesus to cleanse you from your sin and bring you into his family? It's usually a question that's somewhere around that. Do you know that you need Jesus? That's a question of humility, isn't it? Have you been humbled to know your need? And then the second question we ask, do you then turn from the sin that separates you from God and turn instead to Jesus? And that's a question of experience. Has Jesus grabbed a hold of your heart to make you know his compassion? 
And do you then turn from the sin and the idols that you oftentimes are moved toward and turn instead to Christ? That's not a question of experience. And here's a third one. Will you now submit to Jesus as your Lord? That's a question of thankfulness. What does it look like for a thankful heart to pour itself out in service to God and to others? And now we're finally getting to that fourth kind of piece, and it's the doing of the thing. See, when we're baptized, we're, we're not just baptized for us. It's not simply a marking of what Jesus has done for us, although, of course, it is that. It is also a unification with him in his mission. We become united to Jesus so that we might be united to his mission to love and serve and save the world. That as he has laid himself down for us and for the world, given his life for the world, that we are called to the same. That by belonging to Christ, we are commissioned then to be sent out, to pour out the compassion that he's shown us so that we might be compassionate on others. So that somebody who's never actually known what it means to have one real friend in their life maybe they might find that friend in us. So that someone who is so consumed with the idols of the culture, and in my culture that is leisure, (laughs) that is busyness, that is my children's activities, the things that drive all of what we do, for somebody that is so locked up in those things to hear that there is freedom to be found in the gospel, that's a compassionate act, isn't it? For someone to be loved and served is a compassionate act. Let me leave you just with this question. How is God calling you to show his compassion to those around you this week? If you're on a short-term mission trip like I am, the initial response is, well, it's those people that I'm going to be serving. And that's true. But let's take it a step further. How is God calling you to move toward maybe somebody else on your team? How is God calling you to move toward the person that you don't get along with as well? How is God calling you to move toward your spouse this morning or your children or your sibling? How is he calling you to show compassion to those around? (laughs) To reveal what he has done in your heart so that others might know it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for the work that you have done on our behalf. We thank you that we can rehearse this story and proclaim it together. That though we're a lot worse off than we think we are, your love and your mercy is a lot bigger, Lord, than we could even imagine that it is. It's mercy that can reach down and dig to the bottom of a heart like Jonah's. And so, Lord, the revelation that comes about in Jonah's mind, or at least that should, that if God can save someone like me, maybe he can save the Ninevites too. Lord, let that happen in our hearts. That if you can do your work of merciful compassion to us, Lord, maybe you can even work it through us. Will you show us how to move toward others this week? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.